Several months ago, Brazilian mother Danielle Marquez, she woke up at 5.30 in the morning. And as is her normal custom, she then went into the bedroom of her nine-year-old son, Emmanuel, to check on him. And when she walked in, to her delight, she found her nine-year-old little boy, Emmanuel, sleeping soundly. She then went back into her room, got herself ready for the day, checked her email and social media accounts on her phone for a couple hours. And then at 7.30, two hours later, she went out from her room to then wake up her son to get him ready for the day. Yet when she did to her horror, her son was nowhere in the house. He was missing. She has a imagine, she immediately began to panic and was concerned. She then contacted the authorities and a search went out for this nine-year-old little boy. After 12 hours, they found him. You know where he was? He was on an airplane bound for San Paulo region of Brazil. Employees say the plane had traveled about 1,700 miles before they noticed him on the plane. You see, the night before, the little boy Googled how to get on an airplane unnoticed. That morning, he snuck out of his house, made his way to the nearby airport where he then boarded a plane without a ticket. Airport management is investigating how the boy was able to board a plane with no travel documents or luggage. Once he was found, the airline then flew him back to his rightful home. You know why he snuck out? He simply wanted to spend some time with his extended family who lived in that area. Now, on one level, just hear me out here. It's pretty remarkable that a nine-year-old could pull that off, right? I mean, sneaking out of his house unnoticed, getting a ride to the airport, going through security, and boarding a plane, all without a ticket? It's impressive. But it's also wrong. <laughs> Very wrong. That boy strayed away from his mother's authority and good commands. That boy did something he knew he shouldn't do. Now, I have not been with all of you every moment of this past week. But I'm quite certain that each of us in this room have gone astray at some point. I know I have. What I mean is either in our thinking or in our attitudes or our actions, all of us in this room, at some point this past week, we have strayed away from the commands of our good and loving Heavenly Father. This isn't new information. All of us in this room have sinned. This week, 
So here's the question I want us to consider this morning, and that is, what should we do after we sin? Once we realize, like this young boy, once we realize that we have indeed gone astray, we just sing about it, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Once we realize that we have wandered away from the Lord, what should we do? And I bring this question to your attention because this is the exact question King David is forced to answer in our text this morning. This morning, if you can believe it, we conclude our two-year study of First and Second Samuel. We began, I checked, <laughs> we began our study in First Samuel almost two years ago to the day. Can you believe that? And in our text this morning, in this, the final chapter of 2 Samuel, we find the Lord angry. The book ends with God mad. He's angry at Israel, and he's also angry at David due to their sin. So you know what God does? Look at all this. God decides to give David the choice of what kind of punishment he should receive. God gives David three options. You know what they were? Three options for his sin were, as a punishment, three years of famine, three months of fleeing from his enemies, or three days of pestilence in the land. Door number one, door number two, door number three. Which would you choose? Faith, 2 Samuel ends with King David being given a choice. And faith, his response is instructive for us today. You know why? Because you know what option David chooses? None of them. Instead, you know what David does? He instead throws himself into the hand of God. And faith, I want to argue that David's response is the response we all should have in the wake of our sin. When we recognize we've gone astray, when we've done something we know we shouldn't do, what should we do? Like David, we should throw ourselves into the hand of God. You see, this book ends on this note, and here's, here's the preaching point for this morning, and that is simply this. Based on this text, after you sin, throw yourself into the hand of God. When you've sinned against Him, go back to Him. Don't conceal your sin. Don't run from God, and especially, friend, don't try to justify your sin. No, instead, in humility and repentance, throw yourself into the hand of the Lord. You know, the more I contemplate and meditate on this final chapter, the more I see the brilliance of the author. In fact, put yourself in the author's shoes for a moment. Right? How would you end 
this true masterful account of King David? How are you going to bring it in for a landing? What episode in his life would you highlight? What, What note or accent would you want to end on? You know what the author of 2 Samuel chose to do? As we're about to see, he chose to end this book by painting in brilliant, high-definition, vibrant colors a picture of both God's wrath, full display, bright, shocking colors to, to paint a picture of God's wrath and just as colorful, just as powerful, God's mercy. This chapter is both scary and comforting, and its truth ought to prompt us to follow David's example and is to throw ourselves into the hands of God after we sin. And what I mean by that is to run towards him, to go towards him in humility and repentance. So if you haven't already, please turn within your Bibles to 2 Samuel 24. That's page 277 in that paperback Bible. And as you're turning there, let me give you the context. Uh, As we've noted, the final four chapters of 2 Samuel have been carefully ordered and arranged. And I have it here up on the screen. Notice the symmetry of how these final four chapters have been put together. Notice how these chapters are bookended by problems. And this is going to be important for us to properly interpret our text this morning. So after you sin, I believe this text moves us towards this application. After you sin, throw yourself into the hand of God. And and why should you do that? Well, I believe the text highlights three reasons. Three reasons why you ought to turn towards him and plead for his mercy. And here's the first. Fall into the hands of God. Throw yourself into his hands after your sin because number one, God's wrath is relentless. God's wrath is relentless. Follow along with me as I read verses 1 through 9. We read this. And again, again, this is, this is how he's ending 2 Samuel with these words. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. Now, we don't know what prompted this anger of the Lord. Uh, it's... <laughs> We don't know what sin brought this about, but you know what? We've been studying these two books, and there's plenty to choose from, <laughs> okay? Israel has not been great, so there's some sin that's it's angered the Lord, and rightfully so. And so notice what he does. Was kindled against the Lord, and he incited David against them, saying, go number Israel in Judah. And as we're about to see, David sinned in doing the census which is then going to bring about judgment on the people. So at the start, Israel sinned. We don't know what the sin is, but God was angry about it. He incited David to do the census, and in the act of taking the census, David sins. Now there's more judgment. Verse 2. 
So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, go through all the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and number the people that I may know the number of the people. And notice Joab's response. But Joab said to the king, may the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are while the eyes of my Lord the king still see it. But why does my Lord the King delight in this thing? This is going to be important later. This is something that I think speaks to the motive of David of why he wants to do this. Verse 4, But the king's word prevailed against Joab and the commanders of the army. So Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king to number the people. And they crossed the Jordan and began from Eror, and from the city that is in the middle of the valley, toward Gad and Jerez. Jazers, excuse me. They came to Gilead and to Kadesh, in the land of the Hittites. They came to Dan, and from Dan they went around to Sidon. They came to the fortress of Tyre, and to all the cities of the Hivites and the Canaanites. They went out to the Negev of Judah and Beersheba, so that when they had gone through all the land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and 20 days. And Joab gave the sum of the numbering of the people to the king. In Israel, there were 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword, and the men of Judah were 500,000. Amen. God is relentless in his wrath. The, the Christian music group Mercy Me wrote a song entitled Grace Got You. I heard it the other day on the radio. Maybe you've heard it before. Uh, here's, here's the chorus. Laugh till your whole side's hurting. Smile like you just got away with something. Why? Because you just got away with something ever since, ever since grace got you. Now, I think, I think, I get the sentiment of those lyrics. And please hear me, my point is not to throw this music group under the bus, okay? But I, I do need to tell you that that chorus is not simply biblically incorrect. No, it actually communicates the exact opposite of what Scripture teaches. Friend, please hear me. God never lets something slide. Never. God never lets someone ah, just get away with something. And that's good news. And you know why God just doesn't let anyone get away with something? Because God is just. And because God is just, he must punish sin. And as this passage makes clear, God is relentless in his pursuit to punish sins, no matter how much time has passed. Now, to be sure, there, there is a lot to unpack 
in the opening verses of this chapter. Yet what is often overlooked is the first statement of verse 1, and that is this whole episode has to do with the anger of the Lord being kindled against Israel. Now, unlike 2 Samuel 21, verse 1, remember that was the, the first of the bookends, right? Unlike that chapter, which clearly cited Saul's blood guilt as the reason why the Lord was angry at Israel, we are not given a reason in this text. Now, some have speculated it was because of the nation's sin and rebellion against David and the revolts of Absalom and Sheba. This is because we read no account of national repentance for either of those grievous conflicts. But here's the deal. We're not told the reason. And truthfully, God doesn't owe us an explanation. All we know is Israel sinned and that made the Lord angry. So what does God do? And this is where it gets interesting. (laughs) The text says that God incited David to sin by taking a census. Now, how can this be since the rest of Scripture clearly teaches that God tempts no man? James 1.13. Well, I believe the answer is found in the parallel account of this event, and that's in 1 Chronicles 21. Because you know what that text says? There it becomes clear that Satan provoked David to sin and the Lord allowed it. You see, the devil was permitted to do what the devil does, tempt man. And please hear me, and after being enticed by Satan, David gave into his lusts and he sinned. David is culpable for his actions. So how did David sin in this text? Well, you need to know there's nothing wrong in and of itself in taking a census. We read in Exodus 30, 12, that this was allowed and even assumed by the law. Indeed, Jesus himself taught that counting troops is a wise and prudent thing to do. In Luke 14, 31. Yet as the rest of the narrative makes clear, David sinned in taking the census. And how so? He sinned in two ways. He sinned in his motive and his method. His motive for taking the census and his method for taking the census. As several commentators have pointed out, in the parallel account in 1 Chronicles, it reveals that the census was conducted right after a series of notable victories by David. And it's most likely that David sinned in self-glorifying pride and self-reliance. Notice Joab's concern in our text in verse 3. His concern focused on the desire of David's eyes to see the great number of potential soldiers. I mean, think about it. Joab's trying to talk him out of it because Joab can see, as far as he's concerned, that David took delight in knowing just how many warriors were at his command. This is a a motivation of self-reliance and prideful glory. Indeed, an additional explanation of David's crime might lie in the echoes of the Exodus found in this text. As we're about to see, the word plague in 2 Samuel 24 is the same word used for the plague in the Exodus account. 
And just as the Passover, only a sacrifice can avert the plague of death. So, if David's punishment was analogous to that of Pharaoh, then maybe so was his crime. And remember, Pharaoh's first crime was to use God's people as slaves. Instead of respecting them as belonging to God, he took them as his own. Tell me, have we seen David take anything as his own that didn't belong to him already? Yes. Can you think of a lady? What's her name? Bathsheba. David has this pattern of taking things that don't belong to him. Now he takes the people belonging to God and treats him as his own possession. In fact, we're even told as much in chapter 20, verse 24, that he put in place someone who's in charge of forced labor. So, so David sinned in his motive, but he also sinned in his method in taking the census. We read elsewhere in Scripture that the census was to be done by the priests. But tell me, who does he instruct to count the census? Joab and the commanders. Furthermore, the census was to be accompanied by an atonement offering, which was not collected. So he sinned in both his method and his motive. Now, let's just come up here for air for a second, okay? We all know that sin brings judgment. And this is a truth that needs to be emphasized in a generation that desperately wants to forget it. But at the same time, faith, we also must recognize that God is sovereign over all things, sin included, and that sometimes he arranges things so that judgment brings sin, which brings more judgment. Now, to be clear, is God the author of sin? No. But does he wield sin for his righteous and holy purposes? Absolutely. And that's what we have here in this text. Indeed, we not only have this text, we have countless others. I mean, think for a moment about Assyria. Assyria, who was full of military arrogance and pride and sin, yet God used as an axe in his hand. Or think of what Herod, Pilate, Pontius Pilate, and all the Jews did with wicked hands, Acts 4, what God had determined beforehand to be done, and to which Jesus submitted to as the will of the Father. Faith, God often picks up dirty tools with holy hands. And what I want you to see is that God's wrath is relentless. Time makes no difference to him. The passage of time in Israel's dimming memory did nothing to erase their sin in the mind of God. So from the Lord's perspective, listen, nothing merely blows over. Friend, God punishes sin. He never lets anything slide. That's why we ought to go to Him in the wake of our sin. We can't hide from Him. Can we? So go to Him. Indeed, go to Him because next... His mercy is great. Look at what happens next in verses 10 to 15. But David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. 
And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. Notice, is David excusing his sin? Is he? Is he justifying it? He's owning it. And when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go say to David, Thus says the Lord, Three things I offer you. Choose one of them, that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and told him, and said to him, Shall three years of famine come to you in your land? Or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days pestilence in your land? Now consider and decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. And then here, what I believe is is the central and the key of this whole text. Verse 14, then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of God. Why? For his mercy is what? Great. But let me not fall into the hand of man. So the Lord set a pestilence on Israel from the morning until the appointed time. And there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba 70,000 Dean Gunther is a tattoo artist who lives in Manchester, England. And when a recent client came to him with a bold idea, he was so excited about this idea that he actually he did it for free. You see, his client was a friend who hates working out, but who really wanted six-pack abs. <laughs> Have you ever wanted six-pack abs but hate working out? So this guy asked Gunter to tattoo the look of six-pack abs on his stomach. Okay? Imagine a pale, flabby belly transformed into a cut, permanently tanned six-pack. Once they completed the two-day project, they took a video of it and shared it on social media. The video spread like wildfire, and one user commented and summed up the whole approach with this simple statement, quote, if you can't tone it, tat it. (laughs) Now, please hear me. Please hear me. This in no way is an endorsement or recommendation to get a tattoo. All I want to point out, and if you go online and you see this, is that the tattoo artist did a remarkable job of covering his belly fat, his jiggly belly, with the appearance of health. You see, instead of removing his fat, he simply covered it up. Notice, David does not try to cover his sin, does he? He doesn't try to make it look better by justifying his actions. No, instead, David honestly owns and confesses his sin to God. 
And here's one of the remarks of a regenerate child of God. This is one of the marks of a true believer. It's not that a Christian does not sin, but that having sin, their heart is pierced. They're convicted and they own it and confess it. A true Christian will not be happy in their sin. And friend, if you are happy and content in your sin, then your profession of faith may not be legit. Yet even more than his own sin, notice David's understanding, great understanding of the Lord's mercy. Look, when faced with the three options... He chooses none of them and instead chooses to throw himself at the mercy of God. This is at least the third time, by my count, that we've seen David make such a statement like this. That he surrenders all and he goes all in trusting God that he's going to do what's right. I'm just going to throw myself at the mercy of the Lord. I mean, think about this. David is about to meet the Lord's wrath. And yet he is convinced of the Lord's mercies. Somehow he imagines the hand that strikes him will nevertheless spare him. Dale Ralph Davis recounts a terrifying situation that happened in the Brookfield Zoo in Illinois. This happened many years ago, but a three-year-old toddler, a little boy, he fell 18 feet into an um, enclosure that was inhabited by seven gorillas. Imagine that, 18 feet falling into the gorilla exhibit. Amazingly, the three-year-old boy was still alert when he was taken to a nearby hospital. But how did the boy ever get out of the gorilla enclosure in the first place? You know how? Binti, a seven-year-old female gorilla, picked up the child, cradled him in her arms, and then intentionally put the boy right next to the door where the zookeeper could get him. Now, we normally don't associate gorillas with kindness, do we? In fact, that's what kind of makes this story amazing. Indeed, we may be grateful to Binti, but we would prefer not to trust her with another child, right? Hmm? But I wonder... If in our gut level thinking, we don't have a gorilla view of God's mercies. We tend to look upon mercy as a divine exception rather than as the divine character. Not so David. Even in his wrath, David knew that he was not facing a gorilla God. Here was a believer who had a grip on mercy, or better stated, Mercy had a grip on him. Faith, as we sing, and as we're about to sing here in a a moment, his mercy is more, amen? Let us be faithful, faithful to come to him in the wake of our sin in genuine repentance and confession. Finally, throw yourself into the hand of God because... His atonement is sufficient. Look at how this episode ends. 
beginning there in verse 16. And when the angel stretched out his hand towards Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, it is enough. Now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Arona, the Jebusite. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, Behold, I have sinned. I have done wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. Now, is David right? Is he correct in his statement? No, he's not. This whole thing is because Israel sinned. Don't get lost in the weeds. The reason why God is pouring out judgment is because in verse 1, the angle of the Lord was kindled against Israel. Israel is not innocent here. David's not the only guilty party. No, all persons involved deserve the wrath of God, the judgment for their sin. But notice what we read now in verse 18. And Gad came that day to David and said to him, Go raise up an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arona, the Jebusite. So David went up at Gad's word as the Lord commanded. And when Arona looked down, he saw the king and his servants coming towards him. And Arona went out and paid homage to the king with his face to the ground. And Arona said, why has my lord the king come to his servant? David said, to buy the threshing floor from you in order to build an altar to the Lord that the plague may be averted from the people. Then Arona said to David, let my lord the king take and offer what seems good to him. Here are the oxen for the burnt offering and the threshing sledges and the yokes of the oxen for the wood. All this, O king Arona, gives to the king. And Arana said to the king, May the Lord your God accept you. But the king said to Arona, No, but I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that costs me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. And then here's the resolution. So the Lord responded to the plea of the land, and the plague was averted from Israel. Now, if, if we're reading this account carefully, then we'll notice, please, that the situation was not fully resolved at the end of verse 16 when the angel of the Lord stayed his hand and stopped there at the threshing floor. The situation was not fully resolved. Please hear me. You see, though the Lord's wrath had stayed, it was not satisfied. This is to say, the scourge ceases in verse 16 
But the wrath behind the scourge must not be merely curtailed or put on hold. Rather, it must be dealt with. Or in theological terms, God's wrath must be propitiated. Hence the altar and the sacrifices there in verse 25. Here's the point. The plague stops because of the sacrifices. 70,000 people have died, more deserve to die, but instead, please hear me, an animal dies in their place. It's still bloody and it's still brutal, but it's an animal dying in their place instead of the people. This is God's mercy. But there's more to the story. 2 Chronicles 3 tells us that this threshing floor was the very spot where a thousand years earlier, Abraham offered his son Isaac. God told Abraham to sacrifice Isaac at a place called Mount Moriah. But alas, when Abraham raised his hand, God intervened and provided a ram as a substitute. The ram died in the place of Isaac. Now here at the very same spot, God's hand is raised against his people in Jerusalem. But again, he withdraws his hand. And again, there is, notice, a substitute. Sacrifice is made in place of the people. But that's not all. 2 Chronicles 3 also tells us that this threshing floor is also the place where Solomon builds the temple. This spot became the central and permanent place of sacrifice. This was where the Israelites would come to find atonement with God. This was the place where sacrifices were made in the place of people. Because remember, friend, God is relentless in His wrath. Sin must be punished. So God in His kindness sets up a sacrificial system. A sacrificial system that's hinted at in Abraham. We see it even in greater detail here. And now Solomon's going to build a temple in this very spot. But there's a problem. As the New Testament makes very clear, the sacrifice of an animal can never fully deal with our sin. These deaths were only an illustration, a foreshadow of what was to come. And friend, here's the good news of Scripture that I I want to impress upon your hearts this morning. You see, a thousand years later after this event, God in His kindness provided His own altar where our guilt could be atoned for, and that's the person, the Lord Jesus Christ. On the cross, the hand of God's judgment did indeed fall on David's offspring on the same spot, on Mount Moriah, at the threshing floor, near the temple of Solomon, as Jesus hung on the cross. Consider this, once again the Father's hands was raised, just as it was raised over Isaac. Once again the Father's hand was raised, just as it had been over Jerusalem in the text I just read. But this time on the cross... God the Father's hand was not withdrawn. No, Jesus is the sacrifice which all other sacrifices of history have pointed to. And friend, this is what makes the Christian gospel 
good news. Are you a sinner? Yes. Are you deserving of God's wrath? Absolutely. But God has made provision for your sin. God has made a way so you don't have to receive that judgment. And that's through what His Son has done for you on the cross. Jesus Christ is the one who died in our place. The judgment of God fell on Him. And through that judgment, praise the Lord, our judgment is averted. Isaac was spared after a journey of three days. Jerusalem was spared after a plague of three days. And after three days, Jesus rose from the dead. The judgment of God fell on Jesus and extinguished the life of Jesus. But three days later, the judgment was gone because he rose from the dead. And friend, your judgment can be gone if you put yourself into his hands. Friend, have you done that? As I've been speaking, has your heart been beating just a little bit faster? Because like David, you've become aware of the fact that I have sinned. I have transgressed God's holy law. I have sinned against my creator. And you know judgment is coming. Friend, don't stop there. Own and confess your sin and then go all in. Throw yourselves at the mercy of God. His mercy that was fully displayed in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the salvation of your soul. Don't leave here questioning your salvation. Receive the free gift of salvation by faith. And for those of you who do belong to God, who have received the salvation, I plead with you, keep running back to Him in the wake of your sin. Keep believing His mercy is more. And then by His Spirit, let us walk in obedience. Amen? Let's pray.